Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. It's your hosts, Stuart in L.A. And this is the second party of the Fellowship of the Review, Jacob. Yes, I'm so glad you've joined me for this because I have so many questions. We are keeping at it, although it's only been a week since you've heard our review of The Hobbit. It's been a little bit more than that between me reading and recording that review and getting through this book, which, of course, is a much more daunting task. I knew it would be. I was a little afraid, actually, and still am a bit intimidated by full-on Tolkien. I knew that Hobbit was the kid's book, and now we're into the real story stuff. We're into the meaty three-part, I don't know how long this thing is. This book, the edition I had, 458 pages, and they're just getting started. I said before with The Hobbit, I, I read The Hobbit as a kid. I tried reading this because I liked The Hobbit so much as a child. I couldn't get into it. I didn't actually read this until, I, I guess, around 1998, 1999, you know, when I was in college because I had just got back from New Zealand, living there for a few years, and I come home to find out, hey, they're actually filming some Lord of the Rings movies in New Zealand. I just, <laughs> you didn't know that while you were there? Nope. That just started as I came home, that those rumors just started that this guy named Peter Jackson was going to be doing some movies so i'm like okay i am gonna finally sit down and read these books and get through them so it's been you know f- what 15 16 years since i've sat down and read them so i'm looking forward to rereading them seeing what i've forgotten since then i feel ready for the challenge i can say that and i think you're right as a kid i could read the hobbit i more or less understood it maybe not every nuance maybe not every character became crystal clear to me but as a kid i tried and could not get more than a chapter or two in fellowship it's just it's a different thing now i have a question right off the bat The time that elapses between The Hobbit's publication and the publication of this is decades, right? I mean, it's nearly 20 years between them. How much had he worked out when he finished The Hobbit? I don't think he had worked out a whole lot. He had bits and pieces there. Now, we're reviewing three books. We'll be reviewing three films for Lord of the Rings. This isn't really a trilogy, though, in the traditional sense. This isn't three separate stories that build to tell one grand story. This is really just one story that was published in three different books, more for economic reasons. One, coming after World War II, there was paper rations, so instead of printing this 1,200-page novel, it was easier to print 400 pages at a time. And also just... Being able to charge people for a book at a time, it was an installment plan for people, so it was better on their terms, probably made more money for the publisher as well. So just want to get that out of the way. As we read these, you got to think of it as one large story. So it took them 12 years to write between 1937 and 1949. Tolkien worked on this a bit of a time. You know, he wasn't a full-time writer. You think maybe he could be? Hobbit, number four best-selling novel ever. This is number two, but he was a professor, and so he would just write chapters here and there, and, you know, I think he had all this mythology rolling around in his head. I'm sure we'll talk about Tom Bombadil during this review. He, he's he got a whole book of poems that he just wrote about the adventures of Tom Bombadil, which were about a, uh, after it was a lost toy of, I think, one of his kids, and he created this character. So I think he had all these weird ideas going on in his head, and The Hobbit wasn't the first idea. He had tried other 
other things before that, and that's the one that stuck. So I don't know how much of this he had, this backstory, this full story he wanted to tell, but he wrote it really in installments over 12 years, and so I'm sure the man with his background with mythology and language, it eventually all came out. It just took a while, and it took even longer to get published. He finished writing it in 1949. It wouldn't be published until 1954. He was writing this originally as two volumes. Now, we have a three-volume set of Lord of the Rings. Originally, there was going to be Lord of the Rings and The Cimmerillion. So he started on Lord of the Rings, finished that up. The publisher was like, I don't want to do The Cimmerillion. Let's just do the Hobbit stuff. That's what people want, are Hobbits. I'm saying the same thing, by the way. I don't want to read The Cimmerillion, but we'll get there. Yeah, we'll talk about if we, we'll do it or why we won't. When we get to Return of the King and, and, and going on. But uh, for now, yes. Okay, so the publisher was cautious? Yes, cautious. So he went to another publisher because he's like, well, if you guys aren't going to do it, I'll go to this other publisher. That publisher wanted The Lord of the Rings. They wanted edits. <laughs> like, no, there's too much here. And we'll talk about tonight. I know I have definite feelings that might match that publisher if there should be edits and he didn't really want to edit anything out so finally he went back to the original publisher and he's like look just publish whatever you want and so finally we got the lord of the rings published between 54 and 55 in three installments wow okay so he finally got the version published that he wanted to they did not publish a an abridged version there are no different versions of this story it has always been the same text not that i'm aware of i don't i don't know of any alternate abridged versions i know it in audiobook format there's abridged versions. I don't think those were ever in print, though. Okay, well, that's a little different, but all right, so great. Whatever we're getting, whatever we're discussing today and for the weeks to come, it will be as he wanted the readers to experience it. Oh, yeah, I definitely think this is his vision. Yeah. All right, well, let's just start with the title, because believe it or not, my troubles begin there. It's called Lord of the Rings, plural, Fellowship of the Ring, Singular. I don't know how many times, and we'll probably continue to screw that up. I didn't understand what that meant until I read this book, but I want to, right off the bat, explain this for people, the way that this works. What we have are 20 elven-crafted magical rings in various stone settings that are used to subjugate Middle Earth. And I'm feeling like QVC right here. Like, <laughs> back now, you can get them $29.95. But there are 20 rings. Thus... Lord of the Rings, plural. Three of these rings, they were all made by elves. Three of them were hidden by the elves. And it's mentioned in this book that one day they hope to pull them out of reserve and use them. But right now, they're just making sure evil doesn't get them. They're tucked away, and we have no idea where those are. Seven of these were given to dwarves. And I can't help but think of Sleepy and Dopey and Grumpy and <laughs> That's Snow true. White I didn't associate it with seven dwarves until <laughs> you just said it. <laughs> but seven dwarves got these rings. And we know from exploring The Hobbit that dwarves have a history battling dragons. Dragons ate some of these rings. Four of these rings were consumed by dragons we know that dragon fire melts these rings is the only thing really that can destroy them so four are completely gone off of this earth thanks to dragon and then three have been reclaimed by evil nine of these rings went to mortal men and they were transformed by wearing them into ring race as they'll be depicted in this book i think it's the same thing they're black riders there's these shadowy creatures that ride real horses and go around trying to get the last ring, the 20th ring, the ruling ring. And it's not as elaborate as the other rings, but it's the one with the true power. It's the one that was actually cut off of the hand of Saron back in the day by this elf named, help me out, Isildur? Isildur, I believe. Okay. 
I've Oof. just taken that from the movies, though. The pronunciation <laughs> can be different. Any pronunciation help. <laughs> and please, folks, I'm just trying to get through this. I do not claim to have authority on how to say these names. It's enough that I can keep track of who's who. But Isildur, he had the ring, the ruling ring, the one that matters, the one that we're going to later associate with fellowship of the ring singular. And then he got into a battle with orcs. It was lost in a river, and time passed until a fisherman named Smeagol happened upon it, and it instantly corrupted his heart. He was like this friendly little person. I don't think he was a hobbit, was he? No, they they have a common ancestor, I believe it says. They were hobbit-like. All right, but instantly he's like, I want this ring. He's with a fishing buddy. He kills him to lay claim to this, and it slowly transforms him into what I'll just call a monster that the townspeople call Gollum. And we know Gollum. We read The Hobbit last week. Eventually, he's cast out of his village, takes up residence in the Misty Mountains, and yes, Bilbo Baggins happens upon him and takes that ring. I like this as a hook, because if you said, let's make a sequel to The Hobbit, the first thing I would think, Smog had a baby. <laughs> and Smog's baby hatched, and it's a new dragon, and, and more dragon battles. I would approach it from a very uncreative standpoint. This took a little bit more figuring out. They took this moment that I just assumed was happenstance. Bilbo just happened to find a ring, and it just happened to make him invisible, and he got away from Gollum. Well, it wasn't happenstance. What we're learning now is that ring... It has its own mind, really. The ring wanted to be discovered. The ring wanted to be moved. Bilbo was operating, although he didn't realize it, into the schemes of evil when he took this ring. You asked, how much of this did Tolkien have planned out? Well, he didn't really have this ring planned out, at least at the time he wrote The Hobbit. I talked about in that review how we talked about the second edition and if you pay close attention to the text here it's interesting because you can see where they've changed the story Gandalf is like I didn't really believe that story you told me how you won this ring Bilbo and he's alluding to that first edition of The Hobbit this is something Tolkien came up with later is yeah let's go with this ring what's going on with this ring why does it have the power to make Bilbo and others invisible so it really expanded from there once he focused on that item and there may be a little bit of continuity issue. Smeagol found the ring and instantly, within minutes, is killing people. Bilbo obviously kept the ring, used the ring, got through his adventures, came home with the gold, and more or less lived as a good person, although a loner, for several more decades. When the story picks up, He's celebrating his 111th birthday, and people like him. He is not an evil creature. He has not been transformed. But he does have this attachment, this possessiveness with this ring that Gandalf hopes to separate him with. Is Gandalf the one sending him away, or does Bilbo want to go away? I don't quite get why all of a sudden I'm 111, and I'm going to leave Bag End and give it to my cousin Frodo and go off. I think Bilbo is always unsatisfied once he got back from his The Hobbit adventure. It is kind of funny. I wouldn't say this is laugh out loud funny, but it's humorous. This Hobbit society that Tolkien talks about, you know, proud foot versus proud feet, which is the proper pronunciation. <laughs> but yeah, you know, he was hounded by his relatives and they're all, where's all the treasure you came back with? And all these rumors about treasure hidden in his Hobbit hole. So, you know, I, I think he always wanted to go back and go on adventures again and hang out with the elves. But yeah, there's this 
60-year period. Like, I guess they didn't have cars back then, and things are really far apart. Gandalf has been spending 60 years, we'll find out, like, researching this ring and reading through ancient records, and <laughs> at one point he interrogates Smeagol slash Gollum and finds out some information. We'll all find this out later, but Gandalf knows something's up with that ring, and he knows Bilbo wants to leave, so uh, there is that discussion, hey, leave the ring behind, leave that with Frodo, but go on your adventure, and it is tough for Bilbo to leave that ring. You know, one of the things, one of my criticisms for this first book is we're not going to have as many characters as The Hobbit. We're not going to have like 13 dwarves and Bilbo and Gandalf. We're only going to have a fellowship of nine. I, I feel like with a lot of the characters, at least in this first book, it lacks character building. I, I don't really get who these characters are, but what I do like, you know, what is a dwarf? How high are they? What is an elf? We get little glimpses here and there. I do like what Tolkien does with the hobbits here. Why has it taken so long for this ring to take hold with Bilbo? Why hasn't it corrupted him? And he talks about hobbits, how they're little people, but there's this magic about them, that they're stronger and we know so little about them, that they, they're tougher than they really are. I like those little moments like that, where we get to know these different races. I wish there was more of it here. I wish I could find out more about trolls and orcs and elves in this first book. I don't feel I get enough of that, but I do like those moments like with Bilbo and explaining why this ring, it's it's stretched him thin, but it hasn't fully corrupted him yet. Yeah, it's made him kind of ageless. I think he looks pretty good for 111, and, and that's part of the tell that Gandalf is like, you look too good to be 111. What is your secret? It must be this magical ring. And this ring is, is more than just magical. It's the one ruling ring. Now, I, like you, like Bilbo, I... Grew quite attached to him. It was his story and his transformation in The Hobbit. I'll admit to it. Part of the reasons I gave up on this in childhood was this isn't Bilbo's story anymore. He is not the main character. And who's this Frodo character? I just rejected the idea that we weren't going to have another adventure with Bilbo. And I think that's probably why I shut the cover on this. But it is for a new generation to go on the adventures. It's almost the inverse. Last time, you had a homebody that was forced to step out and see what the real world was, and they matured. Now you have a little guy that's following in the shadows of Bilbo, and he feels restless. He feels like he has to measure up to the legacy of the man that bequeathed them bags in. Yeah, he's the one hobbit that is excited by the adventures, you know, and the hobbit had established. Hobbits don't like to go on adventures. They want to sit in their holes and smoke their weed and eat. But Frodo, he likes these stories. He is a restless one. We'll find out about his youth, how he's getting in trouble, picking mushrooms and such. But yeah, he's taken in by these stories of his uncle. Yeah, he's 33 years old, which is like a baby in hobbit terms. It's like being like 18, I think, in human years. And at the same time that Bill, Bill is going away for his 111th birthday he's inheriting the hobbit hole he stays there for quite some time it's actually he's almost 50 by the time this story gets started here and we get a little bit of his life he has like three friends he's got sam he's got pippin and he's got mary but he's more or less a kind of a loner and a restless guy that i get the sense would like the best excuse to go. He's waiting for his adventure to come. It comes when he's about 50 years old. It comes in the form of Gandalf. It takes a long time for anything to happen in Middle-earth, even when it has to do with, like, the most dangerous, magical thing ever. I do find that, I don't know if it's humorous, but I, I do find that kind of like, I'm like, I want this story to move. Again, yeah, when Gandalf shows up and he's, Telling Frodo finally what's going on with this ring. I like the party stuff in the beginning with the 111th birthday. It was amusing, but this is the stuff. This is pulling me in. Okay, I want to know this story as Gandalf is talking about this ring and how it was created and controlled and throws it in the fire. And even Frodo, he's only had it for, what, 20 years. And when Gandalf throws that in the fire to see if this inscription shows up, he's horrified that he would try to destroy this ring. It's already taken hold of him. 
Yeah, it, he has. He hasn't been wearing it. He hasn't even really pulled it out, but it's already been slowly working on his mind. I like that, and I like the idea that he's no longer safe at home. That as long as he has this ring, he's going to be a target for ring race, and that they're coming for him, and that Gollum has escaped. Gollum is going to hunt him down. He has no choice. He cannot hide at home. He must go on the road. He wants this anyway, but what better excuse to move than to realize that your home is a target for evil? Yeah, and this is... I, I, I like this setup. I'm excited. As he's leaving with Sam, there's this scene where there's a tall man in a cloak and he's got this really high wiry speech and he's talking to another hobbit we find out later that's going to be one of the black riders and they're looking for baggins that's the name they know from that they got from Gollum from torturing him i'm excited as this journey sets off it's the fact that this journey just it's going to take so long i mean he packs up everything you know it's a big ruse they don't want people to know that he just disappeared all of a sudden no i'm moving you know across town and they got to move all their belongings and go to this other hobbiton town and set up things there and then move on from there it takes a while maybe it's because i'm so excited by this conflict about this danger that he's in that i want things to move along and it, it takes a while to get there i'm glad i'm not the only one because that was my feeling i'm like i love this setup this is better than the hobbit and then we hit 40 50 pages where i'm like can something happen please i mean it's just we have these great stakes and i'm invested and then it just goes at a hobbit pace. It's just slowly ambling along. And we meet a lot of characters that, to me, feel very minor. There's Gildor the Elf and Mr. Maggot and the Mushrooms. There's a willow tree that tries to eat Pippin. None of this is particularly exciting or thrilling or even very adult. I'm thinking this is supposed to be the one that's more mature than the hobbit. This feels like hobbit light to me, frankly. And then, yeah, he's rescued by Tom Bombadil, which I don't even understand why we go down this road. Look, I'm just going to put this out there now. I apologize to any hardcore Tolkien fans. I know this is a beloved character. Like, whenever I talk to people who read The Lord of the Rings annually, they love Tom Bombadil. They want him in the movies. He's never made it in the movies. For a reason, he plays no part. When my dad was trying to adapt this book for Bakshi... He looked for a way to get Bombadil in there. He loves the character. He loves this mysterious character. Again, other people I've talked to, they're taken in by him. He's in here for about three chapters. He doesn't serve a role. He's not coming back. I think he might get mentioned a few more times. He's never coming back, though. Okay, wow. Well, that totally blows my mind because we spend such an extraordinary amount of time on him, and yet he doesn't deal with these ring wraiths. He doesn't help with that. There's something about a barrel weight, which I don't even know what a barrel is until I went to Google, but basically it's like a ghost or something. A ghost kidnaps Frodo and his friends, and he helps out, but I'm like, I don't care about ghosts. I care about the Black Riders. Yeah, this whole barrel wit scene, I don't know what the greater role this plays. This feels like of Tolkien, okay, I'm, I'm just writing this. I'm writing these ideas as they come to me. Right. I'm writing these, be you know, between semesters that I'm teaching, you know, whatever ancient language that he taught. It doesn't feel like there is a vision here. If I was an editor, I'd say, yeah, you're losing all of this, these three chapters. Out of here. We don't need them. Yeah, I wanted to go on the journey, and it just... We're not really moving that fast. For me, as the casual fan, as the person that doesn't want to soak up the lore, as the person that doesn't want to read the poems, can we talk about the songs? There are songs throughout this whole novel, but particularly in this section. Tom is a singer of lore, and I just will admit something right now. Whenever we hit one of those poems, I immediately skip them. I start to try and read them, and then I'm like, nope, I don't care. If they're important to the plot, I'm sorry, I've missed it. I cannot consume it. I don't know what it is. I feel like 
you know, I know that Tolkien was a scholar and that he translated Beowulf and that, you know, he loves the Iliad, the Odyssey. I think he probably nailed it. I think he's captured the way that people commemorate history and lore and song. I think that if you love ancient text, this stuff is really, really cool. But it slows down the action, and I just don't have any appreciation for it. I'm like, get on with it. So I'm severely irritated by Tom and his singing, and the fact that we're not doing for 50 pages what I thought the first 50 pages were telling me we were starting out to do. Yeah, you know what? And again, if you're a big fantasy person and you want to get lost in a world, I imagine you're enjoying this stuff. You know, could I come up with some scholarly reason that Tom Bombadil exists? Okay, we're in wartime, and here's this guy that's a pacifist, and it talks about you know he's able to handle the ring and it's not magic to him he puts it on it doesn't do anything to him at one point they say can't we just hide the ring with tom and gandalf's like he'd probably just forget about it and eventually sauron would find it like okay i, I could fit something into like pacifism and wartime maybe but ultimately i don't think it really matters for this book yeah let's get on it, it takes 150 pages about to get to our next member of the fellowship to get to strider yeah, or Aragon, or Dunedan, <laughs> or Ranger, or, I mean, everyone's got four names, and then they got to tell you who their father was. Oh, <laughs> I cannot tell you how hard that is for me. I'm fine with a funky name or two, but space it out. If there's a paragraph with more than three funky names, Stuart gets cross-eyed, Stuart gets angry, and that was starting to happen. But I do like this. This is where I do feel like it picks up, where they finally get to this town where big people and little people cohabitate. It's like the only place in Middle Earth where they all get along and the hobbits hiding at an inn make the acquaintance of a human being and he's actually already been working with Gandalf. I think he helped Gandalf get Gollum, right? Yes, he hunted together with Gandalf to find Gollum. And he's got the sword. He actually owns the sword that was used to cut the ring off the hand of Sauron. It's a broken sword, we should say. It, I do find it funny, like, he keeps talking about this sword, and it's a broken sword. It, there's some prophecy, I guess, that it will be reforged, and a king will be restored. But yeah, he's walking around with a broken sword that cut the ring from Sauron. Yeah, he's invested in this. He's more than just a vagabond here. He's more than just, he seems like a bum when we meet him. But in fact, he's very much invested in the story and working with Gandalf. He is one of the Nine Fellowship, and he is the one, he's been tasked with getting these people out from under the riders to Rivendale, which is kind of like this haven. We've been there before. We saw in The Hobbit, this is elf country. Yeah, in The Hobbit, they got there pretty quickly and not much happens. They kind of just hang out and laugh and sing songs and eat. Here, it takes us 200 pages to get to Rivendale. Two-thirds of The Hobbit to make this journey here. I cannot argue with you, and I'm so glad I have solidarity with you. But it's not all rough. It's not as rough as that Bombadil stretch. I mean, they do at least get attacked by the Black Riders, and in fact, Frodo is stabbed, and we learn that their sword leave kind of an poison in you that if untreated long enough you're going to turn into one of them although that's that's good tension and really when they get to Rivendale that they can be healed by what's his name Elrond Elrond but we saw this character as well in fact this is where we see a lot of characters we already know Gandalf is there Gloin is there uh, and Bilbo is there actually I I didn't know that he would come back but he is there writing his what autobiography he's writing books I don't quite know what he's doing but he's hanging out 
Frodo's almost dead, and this is the big reunion with everyone. Gandalf has disappeared. Much like Gandalf did in The Hobbit, he disappears a lot. In the first half of this book, Frodo's like, oh, we're supposed to meet up with Gandalf. I hope he's all right, because he never shows up, and we finally get back to Gandalf. I like Gandalf as a character. I think he's well-written. He's, at least in this first book, again, he's one that really has a voice that sticks out to me. So I'm glad Gandalf's back. When he's on the page, something good's happening. He's like a crutch, though. I feel like as long as he's there, he's so powerful. The other ones don't have to worry about solving the problem. He's got his big staff. He will help them. So when he's not there, I worry for them more. It's good for the suspense element. And this is where he's the one that actually explains the title to me. Because Pippin makes the statement, make way for Frodo, Lord of the Ring. And Gandalf gets really mad. He's like, the true Lord of the Rings is, quote, the master of the Dark Tower of Mordor. And so basically, there's this power. Saren's power is, again, stretching across the world. And everything's going dark. And that's what... Lord of the Rings is. It's the bad guy that they're really referring to in the title. Yeah, it's the guy who eventually or wants to own this one ring to rule them all. It, we, we see throughout, he controls the ring wraiths still. They are men that have fallen under his power when they put on those rings. We'll find out a little later in this book about one of the elven rings, at least, but the dwarves, like you said, some of those were destroyed, but they're starting to collect all these rings of power again to try to take over Middle-earth once again. And I'm confused. Names, particularly alliterative names, if they have to start with the same letter, uh. I tend to think it's the same thing. Mortar, don't get confused, is not the same thing as Mirkwood, which in The Hobbit was the place where all the bad things happened. It was where the spiders were, and all the trees were dead, and they got lost, and their mind was clouded, and we thought they couldn't get out of that. Mirkwood, bad place. Mortar, even worse. I think of mortar as being like hell. It seems like it's made of fire and brimstone, and that's where they have to go. It becomes clear that if they can't hide the ring, it will always insist on being found and call people to it. They must destroy it. And since there are no more dragons, the only fire is hot enough or in mortar. So they basically have to walk into the labyrinth of the people that want it. You have to wonder if the ring chose Bilbo back in The Hobbit, has he chosen them to deliver it to Saron? I mean, are they walking into a trap on this mission to burn it. I think that's a great hook for a story. Like, the way to destroy the ring is taking it right up to the dude who wants it, basically. Like, they even talk about, can't we just throw it to the ocean? It'll sink to the bottom of the sea. And they're like, yeah, but it's really dangerous to get to the ocean right now. And even then, it's going to find its way back. You talked about these names that sound similar to you. I thought you were going for another one. You know, here Gandalf tells this whole long story where he's been. And he's been held captive, not of Suron, but of Suramon. <laughs> this is the most confusing thing I remember. I almost had to write the names down on my hand when I was reading this the first time, trying to keep these two characters straight. Suramon is like the leader of the wizards. He is the white wizard. Gandalf is the gray. Suramon is the white. And he's been corrupted. He's looking for this ring as well. We don't know if he's in allegiance with Suron, but he is caught wind of this ring and he's looking for it too. And he captured Gandalf for a while. You know, I, I'd rather be hearing about these stories than about Tom Bombadil. I, I like this stuff when Gandalf is just recounting where he's been and how he is trapped in the tower that's, again, got a bunch of names. Orthonk and it's in some different kind of land like all these names for geographic places here but again when Gandalf's speaking here and telling us everything he's gone through while he's been missing this story I really enjoy it. yeah I enjoyed it I read it really slow too I don't th this was the part where I'm just reading it's like uh 10 minutes every page because yes the names are so tough and it's a story being told to Frodo it isn't happening in real time Frodo is recovering and listening to his friend Gandalf 
who, yes, has a friend named Saruman who sounds, I mean, it sounds like he should turn evil. If his, if his name yes. is that close to the big evil guy, Saron, it shouldn't be a surprise that in working to try and stop him, he ends up being possessed by him. Now, something is mentioned in Gandalf's conversation with Saruman. It says something to the fact that we're headed out of the age of elves into the age of man. Is Middle Earth a history of our planet prior to human beings being dominant, which is to say that we live in modern Earth, and before our time, before our recorded history, there was Middle Earth? Are we to understand that all of these fantastical places are actual geographical places on our globe? I don't know if I go that far. I know I've read in places, and sorry, I don't have sources, but I know Tolkien wanted to write a mythology for man. You read these books... And they could come off as kind of racist, like the rivalries between elves and dwarves. No one gets along here. But yeah, it keeps saying that the elves' power is dwindling, it's going away, and it's the time of man. That That's a big theme throughout these books, is man stepping up and fighting evil. They can't rely on these magical races anymore. And so I think, yeah, that is what he's going for. I don't know if where they're fighting is an exact place that I could put a pin on the map. Is it Pangea before it broke up? I don't know if it really has those kind of analogies. I, know, I think people have tried to draw that kind of stuff. I don't know if it's there, but yeah, I do think this is supposed to be a mythology before men ruled the world. Here's what Earth was like. And you mentioned the elves being powerful. It does feel like the age of the elf. I feel like Rivendale is like a protected area. I feel like nothing bad can happen here. Now that as long as they spend their time here, no evil can reach them. But I guess that's not entirely true. Given enough time, Saron will amass enough power to have orc armies even storm this area. They have to do something soon, which is why Elrond basically creates the Fellowship of the Ring. The nine people, really eight people that are going to guide Frodo, who's tasked with taking this ring and throwing it into mortar lava. There's eight people that, they don't have to go all the way. I think it's funny the way he frames this. They're to help him along, but they're free to go do other commitments should something come up. It's basically Frodo to figure this out, and he's lucky to get eight little guides and bodyguards along the way. Yeah, you get this character, Boromir, who's from Gondor. He's a man, if you're wondering what race he comes from. And he's like, well, I really want to take the ring and use it to help fight Gondor. We're on the front lines. We're keeping Mordor at bay you know they're they're this wars are going on all across this middle earth at this time and yeah everyone has their own agenda what i find puzzling is like no one really has a plan they're like yeah i guess we got to go and throw it into the fires of mordor in the cracks of mount doom but we really don't know how we're going to do that we don't know if we're going to all go with you frodo but we'll start off together it like for the most important task ever in history they don't have much of a plan to carry it out Yeah, if this ring falls in the wrong hands, everything else is made obsolete. But yeah, people are still territorial. They're thinking about where they came from. I think all that's great, and I think that's why they have this coalition of different races. That's why it's one wizard, two humans, one dwarf, one elf... And it ends up being four hobbits. He he wanted Sam to come along with Frodo. He didn't want Pippin and Mary, but they insist. They're not going back to the Shire to warn other hobbits of what's coming. They're going to stick with their friend. That makes them loyal. That makes me like them. But uh, I do wonder how they're going to fare on this journey. 
And not Bilbo. I want to point out, they could have had Bilbo join them, but he's still touched by it. I mean, he's like, I want to see the ring one more time. I mean, even here, even in beautiful Rivendale, he can get evil when he sees this ring. Yeah, he, he literally, like, transforms into this darkish, golem-like character, I guess, when he sees that ring for a second. Something overcomes him, which is quite scary, because, yeah, Rivendell, it's made such a point that, oh, it, it would be really hard for evil to get in here. Eventually it would, but we'd be able to hold it off for a while. But even he's able to like have this dark transformation when he sees the ring he still has a desire for it I would have liked Bilbo to join, but maybe he is too old. Maybe he is best being left with his pipe and his books. We're off on the journey, and it will be for me to learn and and grow to love Frodo. Right now, not sure how I feel about Frodo, but uh, off they go, and it isn't long before they encounter some magical snow in the mountains or something that makes them have to take a shortcut, I guess it were. There's a lot of walking in this book. And, and, you know, I feel like when I read The Hobbit, I had maps. The edition I have for reading this, I don't have maps. I wish I had them. I think it would hold my interest more if I could follow along and see exactly where they are, how far they are from where they're supposed to get. I need help visualizing all this because it's a lot of we're going north and now we got to go south and then east. And yeah, lots of funny names for all these mountains. And Yes, definitely. It was helpful to see that this is essentially for a while the same path that they took in The Hobbit, that they're basically going in the same direction, but they're going to take a hard right and head south. And that's where they're going to be confronted with, once they head south, they can either go to Gondor and fight in a war and use the ring, as the humans were suggesting, or they can finish and go to Mordor. But in order to get there, they cannot pass through these mountains. They have to go through a shortcut of Moria, which, again, another M name, not Mirkwood, not Mordor, <laughs> but another bad place. I think anytime you hear an M and it's a place, it's somewhere you don't want to go in Middle Earth. That may be true. You may not want to go to Middle Earth, period. That starts with an M. <laughs> it sounds pretty dangerous. But yeah, it does. I do wonder if this was some of the second edition editions of The Hobbit, because they talk about the Mines of Mordor. There, there, there's little hints here and there, and we have Gimli, the dwarf. He is the son of Gloin from The Hobbit, and he's one of the fellowship here, and he's excited. Like again, here is where you really see him kind of come alive. I, I feel like Gimli and Legolas, the elf, they get the short end of the characterization stick in this first book. But I do like how excited he is, and he talks so much and boasts about the great halls of the mines of Moria, and, and how he's excited to return because dwarves return there and they never heard back, and they don't know quite what happened. There's a lot of danger and a lot of tension once they get into the mines here. Even getting into the mine, they're attacked by some kind of tentacled creature while they're trying to come up with a magic spell to open the door. Again, if you get bored with the walking, well, here comes the action. I'm glad it picks up here. Yeah, and I remember that being the case for the Peter Jackson movie, too. This is really where it kicks in gear, where we've had some ring race chasing them, but this is where I feel like they're surrounded by evil and danger. And yeah, Sam has to give up his pony. I feel bad for him. I mean, it seems like with every step, they're making the wrong choice that's going to lead them closer to doom and separation and they do well first we do get a little backstory on the hobbit in case you were wondering one of the dwarves balin he died here and so we now know that yeah some of those dwarves they couldn't account for they knew where eight of them were from the hobbit but three have gone missing it looks like one is dead for sure another one from the history books it sounds like also got met it here this is orc country and this is what they run into 
as they're just about to get out of the mines, they get into a big skirmish that's quite exciting. Yeah, I just wish I knew, like, orcs. Okay, we read about goblins before. I, I want to know, and maybe, you know, as much as I say, oh, fantasy and all these names, I do have this little geek side of me pop out where I want to know, what is the economy of orcs? Where they just, like, live in mountains? Do they breed? Are there women? It's, are we always here about just fighting orcs? Yes, it's exciting. They come out. I guess that's my thing. I want to know more about these creatures. I want to know more about elves. I don't really get this sense of what elves are, their sense of time, until page 360. 79 of like a 450 page book where there's elves throughout but yeah the orcs show up i want to know more about them all we know is they've lived deep below and again this is kind of scary stuff they hear these drums these slow drums at the beginning and they kind of build up and you know right as they attack i do like that device for building the tension right before they're attacked and it's not just orcs it's also trolls are with them right and some other creature some fire monster called the balrog which i do remember being a standout in the movie here it's fearsome but here I feel like it's basically here to create the big dramatic twist. The biggest thing to happen to this crew on their adventure so far is when they get to this bridge and Gandalf tries to hold the Balrog at bay and the whole thing collapses. And we presume that both the creature and the wizard are dead. Yeah, it, it was a big shock when I read this. <laughs> that Bakshi cartoon wasn't on my mind. I didn't watched it in probably decades at this point. So I didn't have a whole lot of memories of what happened to this story. So yeah, the fact that Gandalf dies here in the first book, that was a shock to me. Now, I imagine if you've seen the movie, it's not. But for these books, you know, we've seen Gandalf disappear and come back so many times. And even with The Hobbit, all those dwarves live. Tolkien doesn't kill off main characters, it seems. So to have such a big character killed off, I would almost buy it because it seems like Tolkien doesn't want to rely on Gandalf so much. That's why he has him disappear so much. So you don't have his wizardry helping out to, again, create dramatic tension and conflict. And so I bought it when I first read this. Yeah, it's it's quite a turning point, and even if you are wise enough to realize that he will return, it does mean for the immediate future, for a band of people who were already wondering what direction to take, they're at a real loss. I mean, they get out of the mines, they get on their way, and we do get to another way station. It's another elf village. I thought we were done with elves, but we end up at Lothlorien, or maybe it's called Nimrodel. I don't, there were a lot of funny names. My eyes were starting to glaze. I don't pretend to know exactly where they wound up, but basically they had a moment to check themselves before they wrecked themselves, and basically Frodo decides that it's his burden to bear, that he really becomes kind of a martyr figure, that he puts a chain around his neck with the ring on it, and he's just going to trod all the way to his destiny. I really do feel like, although I don't exactly like Frodo, I really empathize with the fact that he's taking the weight of the world literally around his neck. Yeah, at this point, he meets the Lady Galadriel, the first real female character in this story. Now, if you've seen those Jackson movies, you know about Arwen. She gets, what, a couple of name drops? Doesn't do anything. Women in general, it became clear to me at this point when we met Glenda the Good Witch, whatever <laughs> this character is, that there isn't really a place for women in the story. I feel like, admittedly, Tolkien fought in wars where women were not in combat and... Maybe that wasn't his perspective, but they're just not interesting characters at all. I mean, we've had Goldberry, which was Tom Bombadil's wife. We've had Ariel, which basically she was the cute daughter of Elrond. They're ornamental when they show up, and 
and they don't really accomplish much. Here we have Lady Galadriel. She shows them a river where they see a potential future and Frodo basically sees for the first time the eye of Sauron, that burning red eyeball that is his destiny and where he's headed. But, you know, she gives out some gifts. I just, what does she do? I don't, I don't know. It would have been nice. I would have thought to include a woman in the mix, but maybe that's just way too progressive for <laughs> 1952. Yeah, maybe we'll get one later on. We, we still got two books to go. What I like about the Lady Galadriel, I think she does guide Frodo, you know. He's been trying to get rid of this ring. He tries to give it to Gandalf, and I was like, no way am I touching that. He tries to give it to Galadriel. And there's this whole scene about how she would take in, she'd be so beautiful and fair, terribly fair, this goodness that would actually corrupt everyone. She'd force everyone to be good it almost sounds like and that was her test I, I do like that moment and then it puts in perspective Frodo's gotta be the maybe because he's the least powerful he's gotta bear this ring because if he does finally put it on and wear it he can't do that much damage at, at least for a while he'll be invisible and I don't want to know what he'll look like as a ring wraith a, a little hobbit ring wraith <laughs> floating around there but I do like again there's callbacks we find out Galadriel is wearing one of the elven rings, and that's part of her power, that Sauron can't control those elven rings, and she has one on, and only Frodo is able to discern that. No one else was. So I, I feel like there's some moments of growing between Frodo and Galadriel, and yeah, but I get what you're saying. At the end, she gives a lot of gifts, but it also provides, again, characterization. That's something I feel is missing from at least a lot of these fellowship members, and we get this scene with Gimli, you know, asking for a strand of her hair, and I, I think that's a nice moment there. We get that tension between dwarves and elves and that a dwarf would ask this queen among elves for a strand of her hair and you know she's taken back by the boldness. I do like those moments maybe because we get so few of them in this first book that I, I want to know who these characters are. I want to know more than just how well they could swing an axe or a sword. I guess at the end of the day, there needs to be one character that's our primary character. And since we had the Hobbit and we have a familiarity with the Hobbit, they're going to make it the Hobbit. But I don't know that Frodo is the most interesting character here. It does feel like Gandalf had more to do. It feels like Aragorn had more to do. I do want to know about the elf, the dwarf, but we're going to have time. There's still two very big books to go before it's all over with. And I presume that I will get to know these characters. But at the start, we've definitely taken a link the journey with Frodo. That's where they kind of end here. Frodo decides that he's but going to go solo, that, that after all of this deliberation about should we go to Gondor or should we go to Mordor, he's just going to go to Mordor by himself. And it's only because Sam is such a good friend and a bad swimmer <laughs> that he ends up in the same boat with him. Yeah, I, I do like how this book ends. I mean, the whole, with Gandalf gone, there's really no direction. Strider or Ranger or Aragon, you know, all these different names for him who seems like a natural leader when it's really up to him things kind of fall apart and you get this great scene with Boromir trying to tempt Frodo I, I do like how everything just falls apart here at the end and no one's been able to make decisions since Gandalf left and Frodo he again he has his moment here he's gonna make a decision I don't know if it's the best one to try to go sneak into Mordor all alone but he makes a decision here and yeah I like that Sam it isn't haphazard he's smart enough to figure out hey Frodo had to go back to the boats like he figures it all out and so he heads back I like that it wasn't happenstance. I think there are times where things are happenstance when Tolkien's writing. This isn't one of them. Sam's smart enough to figure it out. It's a great piece of character writing for him. You know, Sam's kind of been like this doofus. He's a gardener. He's the working class hobbit. And, and so for him to have this moment where he uses his brain and figures it out, I like that. I agree. It's ironic, though. I mean, this is called Fellowship of the Rings, and it's broken. I mean, I feel like... Of the ring. Than... Of the ring, singular. Oh. <laughs> yes. Fellowship of the Ring. These All these guys that are working together... 
I feel like it's in tatters at the end of this novel. And so, yes, I want to know what happens next. The good news is I'm hooked. And although, yes, my fantasy bias was tested many times during this very lengthy novel, and I do feel like 50 or even 100 pages, certainly all of these songs could come out and I would never miss them. I do feel like, yeah, this is a pretty good start to a big epic story. And so I'm just going to exert a little patience. It's hard for me, but I'm going to try to go with the flow, or rather the lack of flow sometimes, and let it wash over me when I don't particularly care about a detail or two, and continue on. I think that if you're in it for the long haul, you definitely will want to read more. And and these aren't standalone stories. You couldn't read this and feel satisfied like this was enough. You have to go to completion or give up because you don't care. But I'm ready to keep going. Yeah, I think what's most telling with Fellowship of the Ring. Those other books, there are moments that I recall that weren't in the movies, things that I still remember. I had forgotten so much of this book based on the stuff that was in the movie. Like Tom Bombadil, I remember his name. I didn't remember a Barrowhead or the mushrooms and the dog chasing him through the fields. All that beginning stuff I did not remember and I could see why. It's not as engaging. It is a bit of a journey, I think, to get into the Lord of the Rings. We'll talk about the two towers and I'm hoping as Tolkien was working on this, things started to form and it becomes more cohesive. The event have more weight to them than these early ones do. Once they get to Rivendell in this book, things really start to take shape, but it takes a while to get there, and that's my problem with this first book, really, is all the walking around and not a whole lot of exciting stuff happening, a lot of names, uh, and just a lack of character. Dare I say it, but there's room, actually, for Peter Jackson to make a better movie out of this book. I'm curious to see how he's going to tackle the challenge of adapting this and what details he'll focus on and what he'll cut. I'm interested to revisit those films too and I'm, I am interested in revisiting The Two Towers next week. Yeah, absolutely. All I remember about this one is where we get a lot of Gollum and that's from the movie. I don't know if that'll be true in the book but I'd like to see Gollum. He's been teased throughout this. There's been something following them, not just the ring race. I think it's been Gollum and I look forward to that return of that crazy scary character. So thanks for joining us. We're going to keep at it next week. Two Towers. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.